listening to Living Medicine, a special podcast series from the Irish Medical Organization, which explores the lives and careers of senior figures in the medical profession. My name is Liam Geraghty. Our guest on today's episode is Dr. Austin O'Carroll, a GP well known for his work with disadvantaged and marginalised groups, including the homeless, drug users, alcoholics and migrants. Most recently, he was invited to give the annual Irish Medical Organization's Doolin Memorial Lecture, and we'll be discussing some of the issues raised in that lecture a little bit later on. Austin, you're very welcome to the show. Many people will be aware of your work with marginalised and disadvantaged groups, but for those who aren't, perhaps you might give us a short overview of your work. I started off working in the inner city in 1997 in a GP practice in the inner city, which was an immersion experience. Basically, this is a practice where it served a community that had been, you know, destroyed by the drugs through the 1980s. I met families there, whole families who'd lost several people to drugs. And, like, drugs were rampant. Many people had lost friends, relatives, and many people were addicted to drugs. And so it was also a community that suffered from severe illness and lack of access to service. So, But it was a hilarious place to work. I mean, we had waiting rooms, sing songs. We had... uh, absolute characters at one stage found someone trying to steal the fireplace from my waiting room it was a madcap place but anyway I've been working there since 1997 a fantastic practice I took over from Dr Jim Sleen through that I got and worked with marginalized groups including people who use drugs and then around the late 90s with the influx of migrants and um, I don't know if it was but if you look at the statistics it shows that they decided to put most of the migrants in the area that had most of the social problems, which is the north inner city. And so we had a huge influx of migrants. So I started working a lot with migrants and through a refugee reception centre, the Parallel West Hotel. So we'd have a lot of migrants in our services as well. And from that, then I ended up working in homeless services. I started to around 2004. Through that, I've sort of developed, first of all, an organisation called Safety Net. And Safety Net, I founded in 2005 and worked for 10 years as medical director. And also another organisation called GMQ, which is a safety net affiliated service with Dr. Kieran Harkin. And through those services, we provided initially services to homeless people. We now have, oh God, well over 20 clinics throughout Dublin. We also support clinics in Limerick, Cork and Galway. We also then developed other services for homeless people, such as mobile health unit, uh, a mobile health screening unit, out of our services with DDoc a methadone programme, a hepatitis C programme and a number of other programmes to help homeless people. However, when we in one of our clinics we had a lot of migrants and they couldn't understand the doctors so we got a translator and of course when you put a translator into a service what happens you get lots more migrants. So then we then started had to be developed an expertise in providing services to migrants so then SafetyNet developed services for migrants. I've worked in GP education for several years before that but then I decided that it would make sense They were looking for further GP training programs, so I set up a GP training program that specifically trains GPs to work in areas of deprivation and with marginalisation. It's the first of its kind internationally. It's up running since 2009, and we recently found that 95% of our graduates are now working with marginalised groups are in areas of deprivation, with communities of deprivation. So that's been a huge success, and in fact they're replicating that model in the UK. I also co-founded the Partnership for Health Equity, and our most recent thing is that a offshoot of Safety Net. I co-founded what's called Coram Health Net, and this is an organisation that seeks to set up GP practices in areas of deprivation. We know that areas of deprivation have much lower access to GPs, less GP to patient ratio. For example, in North Dublin, it's one GP to two and a half thousand patients versus one to sixteen hundred nationally. 
So the GP training scheme was part of the uh, trying to uh, provide a solution to that. But then we found a number of the GPs were coming out, and while they'll join GP practice nurse deprivation, they wouldn't necessarily start them. So West Finglas has a population that's roughly the same size as Mullingar. Mullingar, 10 to 20 GPs. West Finglas used to have one part-time GP, has no GP in it now. So that's an example. So we started our first practice two and a half years ago. The the practice is now growing and fully self-sustaining. It's a social enterprise, not profit-making. And we intend to try and get funding to set up several GP practices around areas of deprivation where there's low access to GPs. Homelessness and drug and alcohol misuse are key issues at the moment. How has your work changed over the years in that area? Sadly, in some areas, it hasn't changed. Um, sorry, maybe I'll go with the good positive ones first. <laughs> so the positive ones are definitely the HSE has been funded, uh, has been hugely instrumental in helping support homeless services for homeless people. Like I started, I was the first GP-run clinic for homeless people, specifically in, in, the, in the country, and HSE now... I reckon we probably, there's no city in, in the world that would have a better service and there's very few would have as equally as good a service as ourselves. So I think the HSE has been fantastic in supporting that. I think we are much more interconnected with other agencies. We work very closely with the whole range of homeless agencies and it's great to see all the work that's been done. I mean, the sad thing is it's a thriving business, which is a terrible thing to say. I mean, it is appalling to see the level of homelessness at the moment. In a way, it would be great if we were put out of work. But when you take into account the level of homelessness, I think the HSE has responded extremely well. We also have seen big changes in the hospitals. Cleanini Kelly has done fantastic work in James as, as a, she's developed this post called Inclusion Health. Again, a world premier. And it seeks to help marginalised groups who come into hospital. And not only does it make the stay for marginalised groups such as homeless or drug users a much more positive experience, it has meant they are more likely to stay in hospital. Now, this is an interesting consequence because homeless people, for example, Kleena found, even though they're less than a half percent of the local population, account for 10% of hospital bed days in the matter in James's and 10% of ED attendances. By her making it a more positive experience and them staying longer, believe it or not, they spend less hospital days, bed days overall. And the reason for this is what was happening is they'd go in for treatment of their abscess, their leg clot. They'd leave because they didn't like the hospital or they didn't like the experience. They'd leave before the treatment was finished. Of course, they'd end up back in a few days later, even sicker. So actually, not only does it make sense, I mean, it should primarily we do this because it's a humane response to homeless people and drug users. But Kleena has proven that it actually saves money as well. So then in terms of drug service, I suppose that to me is probably the more disappointing side I think access to drug service hasn't really improved significantly. The reason we had set up a methadone programme for homeless people was there was poor access. And the saddest thing for me is to see people come up from the country, and you have a lot of people coming up from the country who become homeless specifically to get onto methadone programmes. Now, I'll give you an example, which is a particularly sad one. We had a young woman who was a mother come up from the country to get onto methadone because she couldn't access it in her local community. She went homeless and through that accessed our service. We'd want to get her out of homelessness as quick as possible. So we got her onto methadone and we said, now we give you, you can collect it in your pharmacy in your hometown. She'd go back to her hometown to her, do- to her daughter, her child, would then collect the pharmacy each week and then would only come up once a week. And we sadly, once she came up one night and had to stay in a hostel because she came early to could be with us the next day and she was violently assaulted while in the hostel. She became very depressed, ended up in the streets and overdosed. And she is now dead and her child is now motherless. And if they had been able to access methadone in their own local community, that she would be alive today and her child would have a mother. 
And that is just one of many stories of people coming up from the country. And I just think, I think it's probably, you know, equivalent to many of the older disgraces we talk about is institutional stigma, whereby drug users are excluded from the services they need and they are suffering hugely as a result. Have the profiles changed over the years of people who are homeless and people who misuse drugs and alcohol? In terms of, to me, the big thing about drug and alcohol users and homelessness, see, it's interesting, people often segregate them. The vast majority of homeless people are drug users and many drug users are homeless. And in a sense, we have this sort of double standards and sense of, I think Irish people have a lot of sympathy for homeless, quite rightly. I think they have no sympathy for drug users. And there's this thing is that if you're homeless, it's either due to you not being able as a person to manage and we should feel sorry for you. Whereas if you're a drug user, it's because you, you know, you did this yourself. Both homelessness and drug use are totally inextricably linked with poverty. The vast, vast majority of homeless people come from poverty. The vast, vast majority of drug users come from poverty. I see people in my practice who are with their, in there with their parents. And a few months later, I meet them in the hostel because they've been kicked out of their parents. A few months later, I see them at home. So, to me, homelessness, you know, over the years, both homelessness and drug use have been inexplicably linked with poverty. However, in general, the way poverty got most people into homelessness was that you developed a drug addiction first or an alcohol addiction, and then you ended up homeless. I should always say there always has been a minority proportion of people who do come from a more wider strata of society. That's generally mental health. But that counts, has generally accounted for less than a fifth of homeless people. Over the years... Well, I suppose the big change is that now poverty is still causing people to become homeless, but it's not just through drugs or alcohol. They're becoming homeless due to economic reasons, pure finance, lack of ability to afford. That's horrific because now you're seeing a lot of children in homelessness. And the problem is once you bark putting them into centres, which is happening, and you're trying to, to sort of keep them away from the more chaotic homeless people the reality is once you're in homelessness you get more exposed to drug use you get more exposed to violence you're going to exposed to the problems of the future are being laid down now and we're going to see an awful lot of families who are stressed out because they're children who've grown up in homelessness you take homeless services at the moment one in five homeless people come from being in care we know being in care has such a significant effect on your future life expectancy health and how it will turn out, that's going to be the same for children in homelessness. And we're sitting watching it on the sidelines, and it's just tragic. And how do people in these situations engage with health services? Just in terms of engagement, I suppose, I, I actually did my doctorate in this area, it was on how do homeless people use health services. And homeless people use health services in totally different ways to we as housed people. So, for example, they don't use general practice. They won't keep appointments. They don't go to hospital outpatient appointments. They miss most of their appointments. They tend to go to casualty and they tend, when they end in casualty, they often leave before they get their treatment and they often leave in the middle, you know, quite early on after being admitted and when they're advised not to leave. They also tend to present very late on. Like I often have homeless people who come in and they're, they're really, really sick. You know, they have a really bad pneumonia. And you'll say, listen, you need to go down immediately. And they say, ah, listen, I'll be fine for a few more days. So it's, you know, it's totally, the, first of all, they're the sickest population you can get, homeless people, in terms of all, they, they have a lower life expectancy. We did a survey in 2005, repeated in 2013, and found one in 20 at hepatitis B, one in 20 HIV, one in three at hepatitis C. They have high rates of all your common diseases. So they are the sickest people, and they're the ones most likely need health services, yet they make the, inverted commas, poorest use. The reason is we design home health services for house people. 
So house people are great at keeping appointments. They've got cars, they've got transports, they have diaries, they have order in their lives. So they're able to keep hospital appointments, they're able to keep GP appointments. They also feel comfortable going into waiting rooms, sitting down. They don't have to, they don't have things like, for example, have to get money, food and shelter, or drugs or alcohol. Homeless people face these range of barriers. Some of them are external barriers. Appointments is a definite barrier for homeless people. Illiteracy isn't a barrier. Stigma is a huge barrier. One in four homeless people, when we surveyed them, said they couldn't get a GP because they couldn't get who would sign them on due to their homelessness. They distance from place. And then the very fact that their lives are chaotic. And, you know, I've heard of Maslow's hierarchy of needs, where if you have to manage your housing first, your food next, and health is way up. And when you stick at the bottom pyramids, drugs and alcohol, like, they have a long way to get up before they get to health. So for all these reasons... These are external barriers, but then the more insidious barriers are what I call internalised barriers. So the internalised barriers are, there's no point going down to that service, I won't get a service there anyway. Uh, one couple who I know who've been sleeping rough for many years went one day in a lashing rain, it was a Sunday, there's no service zone, we're freezing cold and becoming hypothermic. And they went to a hospital and as the health professionals cut off their clothes, they said to them, this is disgusting, the condition you've got yourselves into. Both of them swore they would never go back to that to a hospital again. That same couple went in to see a doctor who works for Safety Net and both of them got treatment for their range of drug addiction and alcohol addiction. And one of them is now training to work. They both have their own accommodation and the other started in third level college only around two and a half months ago and is doing her exams as we speak. So... That doctor not only, but basically when they swore, I'm not going back to casualty because that's the internalised barrier. I'm not going back there, I get bad service. But also that doctor lost the opportunity to change their lives. Another internalised barrier is the presumption they're going to die young. So they think, well, if I'm going to die young, what's the point in taking care of my health? Why do you think they're going to die young? Because the health statistics show they will die young. So it's a, And if, I mean, when you're in homelessness, young people die all the time. They die from overdoses, they die from diseases such as hepatitis C, such as liver failure, such as alcoholism, and they die from accidents and suicide. So they see young death happening in the world, so they create an expectation they're going to die young, so why bother taking care of your health? And as another guy said, he said, you know, I'm in my mid-30s, he said, I'm not going to get a family together, I'm not going to get a job, I'm not going to have kids, he said, so what's the point? You mentioned the attitude of those particular healthcare professionals towards a couple. Is there still a long way to go in terms of people's attitudes? Attitudes need to change, but they're in a social attitudes. They're not just purely medical. And I give you a reason is that I, I believe, for example, I want to be careful and say if I sound like I'm criticising the doctors. First of all, there's many brilliant doctors. As I told you what Lena Kelly's doing and James's, and there's doctors in the matter and nurses and health professionals in both hospitals doing brilliant work. However, stigmatising attitudes are entrenched throughout Ireland. As I go back to the issue like drug users, I mean, homeless, we have a sympathy for drug users. We definitely don't. I always say Jonathan Carey, do you remember we marched against homelessness? He died. He was a drug user too. We didn't march against drugs. So it was the homelessness. So stigmatising attitudes are endemic in society. And of course, doctors are social members. So they're going to have them. Nurses are social members. We're all going to have stigmatising attitudes. My own belief is you don't ever be non-prejudicial. You just become aware of the prejudices you have. So each day I'm in my practice and I'm talking to a patient who's homeless or from an area of deprivation, I often find myself talking to them in a way that would be different from a young advertising executive I might met in a well-off area that I know I've been stigmatising. So I'm always watching it. So 
The second thing is when you're in an institution that's under such huge pressure as a hospital or a secondary care where there's huge flow through of patients, where you feel under pressure all the time, under-resourced, of course you're going to resort to stigma because, you, you know, you're going to see people causing problems when there's sick patients there. The fact that the patients you see as problems will probably die younger than the patients who are sick is hard to take to account for. So, yeah, we're, it's like a breeding ground for prejudice. So I do think we need to address stigma. We need to address it in training. We need to address it at policy level. And we need to address it at institutional level. And we need to support the health professionals to feel good about themselves because that will also help them stop becoming stigmatised. What's the profile of the patients you see? For example, in my own practice, it's really inner city practice. We'd have 300 people who've used drugs. We'd have 300 people who are homeless. We'd have three or 400 people who are migrants. I've over 100 people with HIV in my practice. You don't get that in most practices. So you, I've loads of, over 300 people with hepatitis C. So that's my just my general practice, not my homeless practice. So I suppose it's better to talk about the community. I love the inner city community. I think it's an amazing community. I first met in 1982 when I started working in the inner city in youth clubs. I worked all around the inner city in Pierce Street, Sean McDermott Street, Dorset Street, Ballymun, through various... I was working with the playgrounds and I used to work with youth clubs. I always give a story about where I worked in Joey's Mansions with one group of kids, around 15 kids. They were a fantastic group of kids. We used to bring them out every Sunday out to the country. I remember the first time two of them didn't thought a cow was a horse. They were absolutely mad. I, you know, we worked with them for several years and then we lost touch with them because you know, obviously life moved on. Anyway, around 1997, I was called to see a patient who was dying from hepatitis C. And as I called in, I suddenly see someone saying, Austin. And it was one of the kids. She'd grown up. And so we had a great old chat. And her sister was one of the kids. So I was there chatting. I was asking how the 15 kids getting on. And of the 15, seven or eight had died from drug use. And that's what had happened. And sort of that sort of, to me, summarises what happened in the inner city. And that's what my practice. I go out to talk to medical students and I say, yeah, many of you... Die, you know, know a drug user. You might have two or three. So many of you know die, someone who died from drug use. You may get one person. You go into third class in, in primary school in the inner city, and they'll know many drug users and many people who've died from drug use. It's a that to me captures the huge injury that has been done to the inner city due to us supporting a socially inequitable system of social inequity and homelessness and drug use. People think that there's just purely from housing policy, they're not, or the homelessness is from housing policy, that drug use is an individual vagary. It's not. It's because we've chosen to have an equitable society and that is a breeding ground for these problems. And how does your response differ when dealing with the health needs of those patients in difficult personal situations? Well, because I say the, the health service use has changed is different, we need to deliver health service in a different way. So that's why safety net and a number of our other services, inclusion health, operates differently. So firstly, we um, go to where the homeless people are. We work in hostels, food halls, drop-in centres. We don't get them to come to us, we go to them. Secondly, we don't do appointments, it's a drop-in centre. Thirdly, we work with key workers and the key workers bring clients in and when we, need to, when we are worried about a client, we get them to chase up a key worker. We have a health liaison worker who goes, who specifically tries to address accommodation needs of our clients, as well as the social needs of our clients. So we have to work in a much more integrated, biopsychosocial way. It's not just the health problems. How can you treat someone's addiction if they haven't got a house? How can you treat their hepatitis C if they haven't got a house? I had someone this morning who's not attending their HIV clinics, but they're sleeping rough. So we need to get them accommodation to be able to attend their clinics to take their medication. So it changes. And then we also have a much lower threshold in terms of, you know, challenging behaviours and violence is something that we don't tolerate. But the problem is, if you bar 
people who are who will become aggressive. They, the reason that those people are aggressive is that they came from an aggressive background where rules were enforced with stick and fist. So that's the way they've learned to assert themselves. So once you start to understand the world from that lens, then you don't seek to exclude them. You try and include them. Now, you still have to have make sure they don't become violent. So what we do is if someone becomes very aggressive or violent, which is rare, we, we have, we have, I have this, this guy who works with Thomas who's been working with homeless people since he was 14 and he just is able to calm down the most angry person. Like he's just so skilled. And we have a number of people who are, have those skills. In the homeless sector, they are amazingly skilled in being able to calm people down and get them to listen. If we do have to make an intervention, what we do is we have clinics, say, for example, two of our main clinics are in Dublin 1 and Dublin 2. I say, listen, go to the other clinic in Dublin 2 for several weeks and then come back to us. Cool down. And if you lose Dublin 2, you're really in trouble. So we have a much lower threshold. So I think we tend to call ourselves low threshold, high fidelity. That means we we take everyone, we say no to no one. And high fidelity means we try and stick tight to people as much as possible and if we follow them up we try and not lose them to services yeah so that's the principle behind our services when you presented this year's Doolin lecture recently you said that a challenge for medical professionals and society as a whole is to extend our acceptance of what is normal what do you mean by that i mean is now i was talking from two different angles in that so i should clarify i think that for example if if you do a purely biomedical approach you literally you see yourself as treating disease okay most doctors to be fair to them see themselves as biopsychosocial most gps and i think a increasing amount of hospital doctors are seeing that so for example uh, i can think of a patient who had severe immune immunoarthritic condition and tb and had severe disability, and the doctors were treating those issues. But she also had a, she, this patient also had a drug problem and a housing problem and a behavioural problem, and they ended up getting excluded from several hospitals, and their health deteriorated hugely as a result. So, to me, is you have to open up. So that's that low threshold element I was talking about. In other words, you have to open up because those people are the people most likely to die. So we need to be much more recognize that people who behave in these totally destructive ways, and they're not just destructive for everyone else, they're self-destructive as well, it's because of adverse childhood events. They have had horrific childhoods. If you hear the stories of some of their childhoods, you'd understand. So if you can develop that understanding, it explains the normality. What I also was talking about, though, was that we often tend to classify certain things as medical when I don't see them as medical i i think they're medical constructions so if i give you an example of a medical construction i often say to students what do you think dyslexia is and they say it's a difficulty reading or writing i say it's a medical condition they say yeah and i say where's the problem they say it's in the brain so i say okay um many of you can't paint or draw and a load of people put their hands up and i say so what's your disability why is there no disability called dysartia and there is one called dyslexia and they say well you don't need to be able to paint or draw to, to survive in society so I say, well, if we did need to be able to paint or draw, then, and we communicated through painting or drawing, then those people who can't paint or draw would have a, a disability. So like Egyptian hieroglyphics, you'd have a disability, and there would be a disability called dysartia, but there wouldn't be one called dyslexia. And I say, so those people who can't paint or draw, you don't conceive yourself as having a medical problem in your brain. You see yourselves as different. So similarly, I see dyslexia, simple, I have a son with dyslexia, it's just that he's different. But his difference means that we have a narrow education system that requires you to be able to read and write. 
And in that thing is we need a signpost for someone who can't read or write to get them to services. So we call them dyslexia. I think there's a range of conditions which don't have a pathological basis. So ADHD, dyscalculia, dysgraphia. Also, I think I personally believe a number of what we call psychiatric conditions. They're not. They're just, which I don't believe are disease-based. So I'm talking about mild depression, which is unhappiness, loneliness, sadness. I'm talking about anxiety. I'm talking about also, say, I mean, for example, I have a particular hatred of a term called personality disorder. The reason I call it the personality disorder the triple fuck syndrome is personality disorder is where you have a, you, you behave in a very destructive manner. And we know that one of the features of it is that it arises from adverse childhood experiences. We know the vast majority of adverse childhood experiences come due to social inequity. So that's the first fuck. You're fucked because you come from social inequity. The second fuck is, instead of saying it's social inequity syndrome or poverty syndrome, we call it personality disorder. It's actually your personality, even though we fucked you around. So that's the double fuck. The triple fuck is that when you say someone has personality disorder, that's usually a signal that nobody will offer you services. So if you ring a mental health service or say they have a personality disorder, they say, oh, sorry, we don't treat them. Or you ring another service and say they have personality disorder, they say, oh, they behave very, we prefer not to see them. So that's why I think we have to broaden our range of what we see as medical diagnostic. To me, as life is much more complex, much more interesting as a result But also, we don't have to have a disease to respond. We can respond to unhappiness. As doctors, we have methods of helping people who are unhappy, helping people who behave in challenging ways, helping people who have conditions that don't have pathological basis. We should use our range of skills for all people who need help. Another thing you talked about in your lecture was about deconstructing stigma. Well, I suppose deconstructing stigma is that stigma is a huge barrier for people entering, you know, for patients. I gave you the story of how that young woman from down the country. I mean, that to me is stigma, caused her to die. I told the stigma of the, the couple going to, to casualty. I mean, there's plenty of evidence to show people can't access healthcare due to stigmatizing attitudes. So to me, is the way I, we, I, my GP training scheme, we address stigma. And what we do is we initially give them the intellectual tools to deconstruct stigma. So for example, deconstruction is to recognize that stigma is, that when you have a label, it often is, huge layers of complexity to it often which are very negative and what often you don't realize and i'll give you an example people often say to me austin i don't think of you as disabled and i used to in the past say well i don't think of myself as disabled and i used to take it as a compliment when they said that but then if you examine that statement why do they say i don't look disabled because i obviously am disabled i mean it says i'm barned or obvious disabled by looking at me and I realized the reason I used to say it, and the reason I think they said it, is that for me, saying disability actually doesn't just mean there's an abnormality. It actually means that somehow you're unsuccessful, you're unattractive, and that you're somehow not a full person. So because I didn't want to have that label, what I would do is rather than change my conception of the label and rather than those other people change the conception of the label, they change the person. And that shows how enduring and um, stigma is. You know, when you meet someone who doesn't feel that miss, you know, fit the stigma, you don't change your concept of the stigma, you change the person. And so I teach these medical students, you know, I use disability, our student doctors to, 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 to teach them how to deconstruct disability. But then I take things like homelessness, and I talk about deconstructing attitudes. So I take the idea of, 
you know, we tend to think of homeless as a certain group out there who are separate from poverty. We tend to feel sympathetic towards homeless people. We tend to feel not sympathetic towards drug users. Charities raise lots of money for homeless people. They don't raise money for drug users because no one will give it to them. So why do we feel these totally different reactions to a group who are often the same group? And that's about our hidden presumptions underlying these things. The presumption for homeless people is that the poor people is not really their fault. The presumption for drug users it is their fault. It's a fault-based presumption. So by giving them the intellectual tools, we help them deconstruct. However... That alone will not help them overcome stigma. There's a theory called Allport's contact theory that says the only way to break down stigma is through through real contact between both groups. So real contact does not just mean you go into a lecture theatre where a homeless person arrives in. It means you actually work with them in an environment where you can engage as a real person with them. So in our GP training scheme, in their fourth year, they spend a day a week for four months working in prisons in the morning and migrant service in the afternoon, a day a week for four months working in homeless services and a day a week for four months working in uh, drug services. And they work as GPs with the clients and the idea is that breaks down stigma. We get them to do things such as Fiona Riley devised this where you get them to sit down and take a history but rather than a medical history take their proper story and that allows you to understand them as a person and it allows you to get under the skin of that medical condition and realise as a living person and are really the stories are I mean they're horrific but Jesus they're powerful as well. Are we doing enough in medical training to prepare doctors for dealing with people on the margins? Uh, I don't think so. I think the statistics show that we haven't enough doctors working in the margins, and I think that's the key issue. And I think, you know, I didn't get, I got, I did get some from one of my professors, James McCormick, who talked a lot about poverty. And to be fair, but I think in general, I do think it's improving. But I think, I mean, put it this way: health inequalities, the statistics are horrific. If you are you have a life expectancy seven years. If you are coming in, in the lower socioeconomic group, your life expectancy is seven years less than if you come in the higher socioeconomic group. You are 17 years going to spend 17 years of that shorter life with a chronic condition more than a person who's from a well off area. Two chronic conditions is called multimorbidity, and the effects on health just become multiplicative, and you end up having much worse outcomes. You spend twice as long with multimorbidity if you're in an area of deprivation than you are from a well-off area. So you live less long, you spend longer time sicker, and also a longer time with multiple sicknesses. It is probably the biggest determinant of health in our society, and we spend so little time examining as medical students. I spend so much time learning about esoteric medical conditions that I am never going to come across in my medical training, and almost no time on the biggest determinant of health in my population, which is health inequalities. So I think we spend, we should, it isn't just about spending a lecture here there. We need to integrate the addressing of health inequalities throughout health education. So when you're talking about providing GP services, about providing GP services in areas of deprivation, how should that change? When you're looking at hospitals, I mean, you look at the two hospitals in the inner city who are providing really you know, communities which have massive deprivation and massive health problems that you won't get in other GP hospitals and other hospitals. The doctors working in those hospitals need to be prepared and recognise it isn't just about medical conditions, about the social conditions they come from. So to me, it needs to be hugely improved in the level of attention that we pay to the single biggest determinant of how long you live. 
I'm interested to know how you came to this career in the first place. I mean, what brought you down this path? Well, it's interesting because, see, everyone asked me that. And see, I spent an awful lot of time in hospital as a child. So my first five years were almost entirely in hospital. And then I spent a lot of time until I was the age of 14. So is that a feature of why? It probably is, but I can't clearly relate it to it. I suppose I did get involved in community work. My, my parents would have been involved in the community. I got involved in community work early on. So I actually wanted to do medicine when I went to college, interestingly. But I was told by several doctors I wouldn't be able to do medicine because of my hands. So I ended up doing law instead. And in my first year, Mary Robinson was my tutor. In my second year, Mary McAleese was my tutor. Uh, I had this thing where I fancied this medical student. And I ended up going interrailing. And as you ones do, one often ends up in the same place as one fancies. And I remember a particular romantic evening talking to her, over, looking over the AGNC. Nothing came of it romantically, but she said, why can't you do medicine? I went straight back and asked Mary McAleese and she got me transferred to medicine. I have loved it ever since. I absolutely love it. I mean, it is tough. It has got much tougher over the years. I think young doctors do find it tough. But in terms of just the richness of a career and, and a work, I, I would find it hard to match it. Dr. Austin O'Carroll there. That's about it for this episode. Living Medicine was produced by the Irish Medical Organization. And if you're enjoying this series, please recommend it to others. It's available on all podcast platforms, including iTunes, SoundCloud and Spotify. Just search for Irish Medical Organization. I've been Liam Geraghty. Thanks for listening.